Hey, Captain Roger of the Salvation Army Grass Valley Corps, grace and peace to you today. Now, hopefully you've got your Bibles handy because we are going to dive into our worship and study without any other introduction. There was a time when the people were trapped in a system of oppression. Um, like, like sheep, they were helpless to break free from the shepherds who worked to fatten them up for butchering. They were treated as a commodity by the leaders of the system that they were in. They were nothing more than animals to be worked, bought, and sold, and slaughtered. The very people who should have been working to set them free were instead finding ways to profit from and increase their misery. So God sent them a new shepherd as a reminder that they were, or could be, so much more than their leaders had made them. A shepherd focused on reminding them of God's favor for them and his offer to help them grow in unity and peace. But the people scorned that shepherd. They hated him and his working against the leaders who did evil to them. They refused to follow him and they rejected his message. Now the shepherd, realizing that the flock rejecting him was rejecting the God who sent him, gave them a choice to make. They could keep him as shepherd or they could give him a severance and let him go. They counted out the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver, and they gave it to him, disdainfully dismissing him as if he was worth the bare wage of the lowliest of employees rather than the representative of God who gave his all to rescue them from the hell that they lived in. His value to the whole nation, that was the flock, was no more than that of one slave in one family in the whole. There would have been more respect in their refusing to pay him at all than there was in what they chose to give him. Now, this story is actually told in Zechariah chapter 11. And it was meant to remind the people of God that they had a shepherd who cared for them and wanted the best for them. But they continued to reject him in favor of leaders who exploited and led them further into chaos and destruction. Matthew tells a story about Jesus, which reminds those who hear it of this story of a, a shepherd rejected by his flock. Well, it, it reminds those who knew of that story, that is. For most people in the modern world, the connection's been lost to us because we spend more time streaming fantasies than learning scripture. We spend more time with Hulu than with history. We are so deeply caught up in our own systems of oppression and misery, we tend to focus only on shepherds that we expect rather than the one that could lead us to freedom. After all, we've never really known freedom. In Matthew's biography of Jesus, we've heard how he taught those who followed him that they have an obligation to reach out to help the whosoever rather than just looking out for themselves. That meant um, that they were including in the rest of his flock. All of those people were included in his flock. Well, the rest, those who uh, chose not to follow the shepherd... They were allowed to walk that path to destruction if they chose that instead. But this was not a story that satisfied the hearts of everyone who followed him. In fact, Jesus had stirred up a number of people with his messages that every person should be cared for as beloved family, not sheep to be exploited. And some of those people he had stirred up were terribly upset by the things he said, and they felt they needed to keep others from hearing it. We pick up this tale in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. Matthew 26, verse 1. I am reading today from the New Living Translation, 2nd edition. When Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. 
Now at that same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Yeah, two stories going on here. First, Jesus says, look, they're going to kill me at Passover. And then those who are plotting against him say, oh, we want to kill Jesus, but we don't want to consider killing him at Passover. I mean, remember how crowded Jerusalem is and how popular Jesus has become, unless they have someone who can tell them exactly where he is at some point, when he's got relatively few people around him. Any effort to arrest him will surely result in this uprising of people who believe that he's a prophet, or maybe even the Messiah. At best, that's going to result in riots and fighting between factions in Jerusalem, and more likely... It's going to cause an uproar that would bring the attention of the Roman legionnaires who were kept posted in the city to prevent exactly that kind of uprising. No one wanted the attention of the Roman legionnaires because inevitably that led to severe repercussions. Like they would line people on crosses up along the roadways so that everyone would say, whoa, we don't want to do that again. Right? So, the leadership was looking to take Jesus as quietly as possible and they assumed that that would mean after Passover. Besides any kind of judicial action, especially the execution they were hoping to hold, they wouldn't be able to do that during the holiday. It was against the law, after all, and you wouldn't want to break the law. This is at least the fourth time Jesus has predicted his death was coming. We've seen that so far, his followers, even the closest ones, didn't really understand what he was trying to get at. But this time he put it pretty plainly, and he included the expectation that he was going to be crucified. We aren't told about any reaction or what any of his followers might have made of this prediction, but I think at least one of them has finally come to understand that Jesus really does intend to die. And it's a problem for that guy. But Matthew's moving on to another story, so let's just hold on to the idea for a couple of minutes, alright? Verse 6. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. I'm going to stop for just a sec. See, because Mark and John both tell this story as well, we know some other details that Matthew didn't have room to include. We know that the woman here is Martha. She's one of the sisters of Lazarus. We know that she lived with her brother in Bethany. We also know that she doesn't just come in and pour a little oil on his head and then leave. As John tells it, a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. See, at, at these kind of meals in that day, women were not generally present except at the very beginning when they would serve the meal. Then they would leave. There's a lot of reasons for that. Not all of them are sexist, although, quite honestly, it was that kind of time. Now, Martha, we're told, she did the serving. But at some point after that, Mary came in. And not only did she walk into the presence of all of these men... Wow, that was a big deal back then. Not only did she walk into the presence of all of these men, she came and she poured perfume 
on Jesus. Now, Matthew says the head, John says the feet, Jesus, in a moment, he's going to say something that suggests that both are right. And honestly, in the way that these kind of dinners usually work, the head and feet of special guests were usually both anointed with, with kind of a sweet oil that was uh, kept around for that purpose. So there wasn't exactly uh, a whole lot startling about that part. But what Mary used? Nard? This stuff... It's seriously expensive. Like, as in, this is a life-changing amount of wealth just being poured out on someone's feet. It, it's a Lamborghini where a skateboard already would have been better than normal. And once she had poured it out on Jesus, she undid her hair. She undid her hair. I mean, women always kept their hair bound up in the presence of men who were not their relatives. That's the way things were in their culture. And she let her hair down right there in public. And then she knelt down and used it to wipe the perfume from the feet of Jesus. It says the house was filled with the fragrance. That's what John tells us. The house was filled with the fragrance. Yeah, sure it was. Because she's not using this cheap watered down oil used for this kind of thing. She's using something more like uh, a pungent extra strength Bengay. Nard has this sweet penetrating odor. It's so strong. Combined with Mary's actions, the men at this dinner, they would have just been paralyzed in shock. That didn't stop them from reacting. Verse 8 says the disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. That perfume could have been sold for a high price and money given to the poor. I bet they had some thoughts about Mary's presence and her other violation of customs too. But Lazarus was right there after all. So they focus on the perfume, and they declare that its use is a social theft. That's where you say that something could have had a certain benefit, but now it, it can't be that anymore. It's been, it's been used. Therefore, you've stolen the value of that thing. I mean, here it was. It was just before Passover. Passover is a time when people were not just encouraged to give alms. They were required to give alms to the poor. That was their tradition. And instead of thinking about that, Mary's in here trying to use this to do what with it exactly? Wash feet? Seduce Jesus? Show off wealth? Whatever it is that she's trying to do, they don't like it. Specifically, according to John, one of his disciples, one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. In Mark's telling of this story, this grumbling is going on between all the disciples. No one is quite willing to speak up and voice their disapproval openly. But Matthew says that Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She's poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth, whatever, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. <laughs> Jesus says, look, she's doing a good thing. Actually, that's an accurate but underwhelming translation of the word kalos, um, uh, good. Uh, it, it refers to something that is completely beautiful and in harmony. 
Jesus says her act isn't one of theft, it's one of extravagant love and devotion. And he calls it good. He's declaring it to be morally acceptable, despite the rather shocking appearance of her on her knees with her hair down. And his quick and simple statements, they work to clear her of any wrongdoing. Um, he's essentially provided his word as cover for her actions in their circumstances, in their culture. So this act that has sickened Judas has invigorated Jesus. Mary's not stealing from the poor. She's blessing Jesus by preparing his body for the burial that's coming. Burial? See, Judas isn't interested in burials. Well, what is he interested in? All right, we've got to do a short diversion here. It is hard to explain how Judas felt or why he did what he did, because we aren't told. Understandably, given how things were going to go shortly after this event, the other disciples didn't have any particularly good feelings about Judas. They tended to remember him and write about him only as the betrayer of Jesus. I mean, he'd been a brother in arms with them. He'd been tight with this inner circle. He'd been one of the most important people. And yet, they just, well, hmm. you know what? Let me read the next couple of verses before we get any further into that. Verse 14, this is still in Matthew 26. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and he asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. See, Judas was one of the 12, the apostles. He was part of the family. He was one of the hand-picked few who carried the message of Jesus. One of those who were sent out in pairs with the power of Jesus to do stuff like heal the sick and cast out demons and preach the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. He had been part of everything that they did. In fact, there's evidence he was the most trusted one among them because he was the guy who carried the bag with their money. He was the one who was sent out to make arrangements for them. He was loved. And then he turned on Jesus he betrayed the master, but he betrayed the rest of them too. And their hurt, it drips into every reference to him from all four gospels. The author of the fourth gospel even says, oh, Judas, he stole from the shared funds. And I'm not saying that he didn't. I'm just saying it's interesting that this is like the, the only thing they can come up with to say about him is bad stuff. It's from people who make a living out of forgiveness. Once they finally figure that out, anyway. Now, Matthew, Matthew doesn't even mention Judas, except where it is essential for him to be brought up. Before this story, he'd only been named as one of the twelve when Matthew listed them as these are the twelve guys Jesus called, and, and Judas is in that list. Um, and after this story, after this story, we're only going to hear about Judas as it specifically relates to prophetic scriptures being fulfilled. Kind of adding icing to the cake of proof that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That's Matthew's message to us. And so, really, I can only speculate about what might have motivated Judas. There is, however, one clue that shows up again and again in Scripture, and that might be the name that is used for him. He's referred to as Judas Iscariot. 
son of Simon Iscariot. Now it could simply mean that his family is from a certain town. Iscariot means from Kerioth, uh, as it were. Or it could have been a darker designation that they're attaching to him. It could be Judas the Sicarius, meaning Judas the Dagger Man or Judas Assassin, which could just be the way that they referred to him because of what happened. Or it could be that he was a zealot. Now among the zealots, we know that there were zealots in Jesus's circle. We know that there was at least one other person, Simon the zealot, who was part of the 12. And among the zealots, the, uh, the Sicarii, these were the, the men of action. They were the ones who struck against those who thought, um, who thought they, I'm just, let me try this again. They were the ones who struck against those who they thought worked too closely with Rome. The, the people who they believed to be traitors to their own kind, like tax collectors, like people who were too friendly with the Herods and their followers who were, who were tight with Rome. The, these were um, people who seemed to be linked in any way with the hated empire that ruled over Israel. The, the zealots and particularly these dagger men, they sought those people out and did what they could to change their mind, be that physical threats, be that violence, be that uh, acts that terrorized their their home, their family, their belongings, or in uh, some cases, they would even just drag them into an alley and stick a knife in them. Could, could Judas have been a zealot who thought that Jesus was going to be the one, the Messiah? I mean, the Messiah people were waiting for wasn't at all like the Messiah that Jesus is presenting as here. The zealots wanted someone who was going to come and raise up a sword against the empire, leading Israelite armies to destroy Roman strongholds and make Israel great again. Not by political strength or debate, but by leading an army to confront and conquer, crushing any opposition and making Israel the country that ruled the nations. That was the Messiah they were waiting for. But Judas was confronted with the reality of Jesus. I mean, here Jesus, he fulfilled all the promises of scripture, but then he said we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. When faced with opposition, rather than stand and fight, Jesus said, leave and shake the dust off your feet as you go. When faced with a Roman soldier using his authority to force a subjugated Israelite to carry his gear for a mile, as they were legally allowed to do, Jesus said, carry that pack for two miles. This was not the Messiah Judas wanted. And here they were, they were entering Jerusalem with crowds ready to support this miracle worker from Galilee, this prophet who had demonstrated his superiority, even to the chief priests, the leading Pharisees, the experts in the law. He's proven himself to be greater, to have stronger wisdom, better knowledge than any of those groups. But instead of talking about how to inspire the people to rise up and throw off their chains of oppression, Jesus is talking about how he's going to be killed. This is not the Messiah Judah wanted. He wanted a Messiah ready to be washed in the blood of his enemies, not one who was anointed with perfume for a grave. He wanted a Messiah who would bring him along as they rose to fame and power and wealth, not one who allowed valuable oil to be poured on his head and feet, not one who said that it was good for someone to love so extravagantly when that kind of money was concentrated in the hands of Rome, not in the hands of Judas. 
and his disappointment hit a peak in the events leading up to Passover, and he decided that the shame of betraying his master would be overcome by the rewards he could get from turning him over to the religious leaders who wanted his head. It wasn't even really about the money anymore. Look what he says. How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? He doesn't seem to care how much. How much will you pay me? Eh, what are you going to give me? Give me something. It's a token. It's something he could say he got out of the deal. And the pittance he was paid, 30 pieces of silver, that was the price for a slave. It wasn't nothing, exactly. But it showed both how little the leaders valued his assistance and how little Judas cared at that point. He just didn't want a Messiah like Jesus. His betrayal meant they would get their chance. These religious leaders, they'd get their chance to nab Jesus before the Passover. It meant they'd be able to take him before he made bigger waves, before he was able to do something that might change the world. See, they didn't want a Messiah like Jesus either. Matthew, however... Matthew wants us to know that we can enter a room where we are not welcome and we can perform an act of extravagant love for Jesus there. And no matter how crazy it may seem, if we are truly acting to honor him, he will accept our gift and call it beautiful. Jesus may not be the Messiah most people want, but he is the Messiah that God provided for us. Rather than coming in anger and destruction, he came to, to demonstrate his extravagant love and kindness for us all. And in return, he asks that we would do the same for one another. Which means that we each have a choice to make about the path we're going to follow because it ultimately it's going to be the path of Judas, a self-serving, grasping for the things that we want and the revenge that we hope for. Or it's going to be the path of Mary, showing extravagant kindness, giving our best when we could get away with less, and being willing to face a room full of hostility because you know that Jesus will smile on you and nothing else matters. Now, when next we meet, we're going to see that Jesus, even knowing that he was going to be betrayed by Judas and others, he offered each and every one of his followers a new covenant, one made in a way that would give it a permanence that no other deals have ever had or ever will. But for today, I want you to go out of here thinking, what's the path I'm choosing? Am I walking the path of Judas? Or am I walking the path of Mary? Am I following the ways of the world? Am I following the ways of Jesus? If you got any questions or comments about this passage that we looked at today, hey, you can post them here. You can send me an email. Either way, I'm happy to engage with you. Feel free to tell me I'm wrong, and I'll tell you why I'm not. And uh, from there, we can move on and see if we can find a spot in between where we can journey onward together. But before you go anywhere, remember, wherever you go, you've got nothing to fear because God is already there. So go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week.